I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. Um, usually, I'm your co-host, but this time, I'm your interviewee, Matt Bernico. <laughs> That's right, and I'm your co-interviewee, Dean Ditlaw. That's right. Um, <laughs> if you guys uh, don't know, uh, we were on Revolutionary Left Radio earlier this week uh, with Brett O'Shea, and uh, we did a cool kind of talk and interview with him. Uh, about uh, liberation theology. Yeah, that's right. Uh, If you've never heard Revolutionary Left Radio, it's a really great podcast. They've been around, I guess, as long as we have, or even a little bit earlier. We were on their show uh, a long time ago, and Brett's been on on our show a couple of times as well. A long time ago, uh, we talked to him about net neutrality. That was kind of an extremely topical episode, but very cool. And more recently, we talked to him about James Connolly, the Irish revolutionary and the Easter Rising. So you might have heard that already, but it was great to be back at Rev Left Radio and talking about liberation theology, um, really doing that good evangelical work of, you know, bringing uh, the story of revolutionary Christianity to a a broader leftist audience. Yeah, it was a really cool episode. Um, So instead of uh, instead of just talking about something else this week, we thought we just we'd put it here. And if you want to listen to our podcast this week, you have to listen to it. So one way or the other, you're going to listen to us talk about (laughs) about liberation theology. So here it is. I'm Dean Detloff, uh, one of the co-hosts of the Magnificast. I'm uh, a Catholic, a communist, and I live here in Toronto, Canada. And I'm Matt Bernico, the other co-host on the Magnificast. I am Episcopalian, a communist, and a labor organizer in St. Louis, Missouri. Beautiful. Well, um, for people that have listened to Rev Left for a while, you might remember Dean and Matt from a very early Rev Left episode on Christian socialism. Um, So I'm happy to have both of you back on to tackle this topic, which I've wanted to tackle for a long time, and that is liberation theology. Um, I know you both mentioned your religious and political identifications. Um, Can you talk before we get into the, the topic itself, maybe a little bit about how um, you've sort of woven your re- religion and politics together, and maybe, you know, some of the pushback you might get from the uh, from the broader Christian community. I see sometimes you guys go into war with other reactionary Christians on on Twitter. So uh, maybe we want to talk about that for a second. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know if I have anything really too profound to say about it. Honestly, I just uh, well, I, I think that Christianity is um, at its best about uh, loving other people um, and serving God and serving people. 
Um, that's, <laughs> that's what Jesus was all about. Uh, that's what a lot of Christianity is about. And I think that, uh, being a communist, uh, and being a Marxist particularly helps me do that better and helps me kind of understand all of the things that are wrong with the world in sort of a systemic way. And, uh, you know, if you want to really love your neighbors, you might need to, uh, figure out how to seize the means of production first. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we do get some pushback from other Christians. Obviously, it's no secret that by and large, Christians don't seem to make good on that promise to take care of the poor and look after the least of these and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we're not naive about that. <laughs> A lot of the stuff that we talk about in the Magnificast is trying to figure out exactly why our, our co-religionists, if you will, are... Um, doing a bad job or, you know, what makes them think the way they do and all that kind of stuff. Um, we get some hate mail, as you might expect. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's also, it's encouraging. There's been, I think, a lot more Christians tackling questions about socialism and Marxism in the last few years, even since we started our own podcast. So, yeah, it's a, it's a mixed bag, and we're trying to find our place within it. Yeah, absolutely. It is probably worth saying uh, that last time we were on uh, Rev Left, you know, a thousand years ago, right afterwards, uh, somebody wrote a very mean article about us on a on a Catholic hate site. So that's cool. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, <laughs> that's right. So, you know, we get a little bit of pushback from from other places and, and negative publicity. And it's it's all right. Now, do you, do you think that's a direct <laughs> result of our Rev Left episode or just coincidental? Well, it cited the Rev Left episode okay. in, in the article, so I guess I guess so. But uh, we're not mad at you about it. It's fine. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry about that. Um, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the whole idea of, of Christ being about serving the people, about Christianity being about serving people. And I was thinking about this today. I was out fishing and listening to some Buddhist philosophy, and, you know, like many Buddhist teachers will again and again talk about the need to stop obsessing about yourself and to, uh, a main mechanism of doing that is to serve other people, to make your life about service to others. And then, of course, you know, in the communist tradition, obviously huge with Mao, but uh, across the communist uh, tradition, there's this urge to go out and serve the people, feed the people, meet the needs of the people. And um, and, and Christ himself, obviously, is, is another representative of that. So um, I, I like those intersections where, you know, time and again, the things that I become deeply interested in uh, keep pushing me towards this idea of, of increasing um, service to other people. And uh, yeah, so that is good to talk about because that is in the large part some fundamental pillar of liberation theology. So before we get into the, the details, for those who might not know, can you just give us a kind of a quick definition of what liberation theology is and then maybe talk about when and why it arose um, formally as a significant religious and, and political current in our world? Yeah, uh, I'll take a stab at beginning, Matt, and you want to take over maybe partway through to uh, fill in the gaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, liberation theology is a complicated thing because it's a it's a name for a really loose collection of theologians around the world who try to think about their faith from the perspective of oppression and liberation and people who also try to translate those faith traditions into social action. So there is a lot of different strands of liberation theology. Some people... Um, have a, a, a habit or tendency, or it's very popular to kind of say that any kind of um, faith tradition that is radical or political is liberation theology. That's not exactly true. Um, there are other kinds of revolutionary theologies that 
are different, and maybe we can talk about that later on. But as it relates to liberation theology specifically, uh, there is black liberation theology, there is womanist theology, which is pioneered by black women and deals with black women's experience. There is uh, liberationist eco-theology, all these different kinds of strands, queer theology, etc. Basically, if, if there's a liberation movement, there's probably a theology for it. But I think in terms of where it comes from is maybe the best way to locate uh, some kind of unity to it. So it emerges really in the late 60s with people, especially in Latin America, like Gustavo Gutierrez, who's a Peruvian theologian, Leonardo Boff and Fray Beto, who are Brazilian theologians, lots and lots of names that we could say. But it emerges really in, in Latin America in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, in the U.S., there's kind of a simultaneous uh, or like coincidental movement um, among people like James Cone, a black liberation theologian, uh, Rosemary Radford Ruther, a feminist theologian. So kind of as uh, the left is changing too, and all that kind of stuff is getting really exciting in the 60s and 70s, there are these new wild theologies that come to be known as liberation theology. So there's a lot of complexity, but at least in, in sort of the Catholic world, liberation theology also emerges following this really big event in the Catholic Church that's called the Second Vatican Council, which, uh, I don't know, you can read a lot about it if you want, but the, the short of it is that it, it, the Church itself, um, all the bishops and the Pope, uh, Pope John at the time, tried to encourage Catholics to engage the modern world uh, more proactively rather than defensively, including in areas like social justice. So it really sort of opened the, the pathways for a very conservative expression of Christianity to uh, get a little more wild and exciting. Matt, you, you want to add more to that? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, talking about all these theologians is very cool, but I guess it's really only like half the story. Um, you know, liberation theology is about, yeah, it's about figuring out God and Christianity and all these things, but it's also about negotiating those like theological commitments into action. So uh, the books are cool. <laughs> Everything is cool like that. But um, I think what's also really interesting about uh, liberation theology is the ways that the uh, you know, the lives of these Christians uh, played into the practice of liberation movements themselves. Um, you know, there's a ton of different examples that we'll get to throughout this episode, I'm sure. But um, one that I think everyone goes to kind of to start off with is Camilo Torres. Uh, he was a Colombian Catholic priest. Uh, he was super smart uh, sociologist, and he was also a socialist who um, ended up kind of forsaking the priesthood in some ways and, and joining the National Liberation Army um, on, liberation, uh, on, on religious grounds. So, you know, he actually took up arms and he fought alongside other socialists. And eventually, you know, he was martyred in a gunfight against the Colombian military. But like he did this out of religious motivation. And uh, I think in in someone like Taurus, we can kind of see the ways that people take the, you know, they take their commitments to God and like and to other people very seriously. And uh, so much so that, you know, he stopped being a priest and became uh, a guerrilla. Yeah, this may be a, a silly question, but um. You know, just to just to hammer this down, liberation theology it, it arose out of Catholicism, if I'm if I'm not incorrect. And is it fair to say that liberation theology exists solely within Catholicism, or has it spread out and just become a Christian phenomena that people under different sort of tendencies of of Christianity um, pick up and run with? It's definitely it owes a lot to Catholicism, but it would be wrong to say that it's an exclusively Catholic phenomenon. And like I said before, there's lots of uh, different strands. So, for example, like James Cone was not a Catholic or um, lots of uh, 
Protestants, really radical Protestants of Latin America also pioneered different kind of liberation theology. I don't know. I keep using pioneer. I don't like that metaphor. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Get rid of it. Uh, but what I mean is uh, there's lots of very influential voices in Protestantism. For example, uh, in Brazil, you know, which is a thoroughly Catholic country by the numbers, there's lots and lots of radical liberation theologians there. It's kind of one of the one of the main hotbeds for liberation theology, both in the the ideas and in the social movement side. Um, but there's also lots of important Protestants there, like a guy named Ruba Malvez is one of the most famous, who's a, a Protestant, um, trying to think about liberation theology, you know, outside of the Catholic Church. So all that to say, it's the Catholic side is very important genealogically and historically, and even in terms of influence, I think Catholicism is kind of the, you know, when people talk about liberation theology, it's not wrong to sort of associate that automatically with Catholicism, but it's important to recognize that uh Lots and lots of Protestants, too, especially in, in the United States and in Canada, which are largely Protestant countries. They sort of, you know, took it in some different directions. I see. I see. That makes sense. Okay. So can you talk a little bit more about the the ideology of liberation theology insofar as there is one and, and sort of what elements of Christianity and Marxism uh, it emphasizes? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, okay, we can start with Christianity and then kind of go from there. Um, so Christianity... Uh, you know, like one slogan that got popularized in Latin America by bishops and these liberation theologians that we just talked about is that uh, in Christianity, there is or there should be, <laughs> aspirationally speaking, maybe that uh, there is a preferential option for the poor that uh, basically this means that God is on the side of the poor and the oppressed first. So, um, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, political struggles or even reading the Bible, like those are the people we should always be thinking about uh, first. Uh, so then that means that on the other side of things, <laughs> calls for repentance are usually framed um, sort of in like a structurally motive, like a structurally oriented kind of way. So toward the privileged and the rich and the powerful, like those are the folks that are always going to be called to repentance first. So um, a lot of doctrines that are often thought of as like individual, especially in Protestant Christianity in the United States, are made into um, into more social doctrines um, in, in their uh, addressed along really um, structural lines. So like um, in liberation theology, uh, sin isn't so much that it's not just something that a single person does, though. I mean, it can be, but liberation theologians would want to talk about all of the social sins. And um, the same thing goes for salvation, right? Not something that's personal uh, that, you know, you get saved and it's all over for you. But like, how do you uh, work with your community and with your comrades to to be saved and to do sort of like the uh, works of justice and mercy that might save other people. So it kind of like opens up the individualized forms of Christianity to to speak more toward uh, social justice in like uh, in communities. And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously you can see like a lot of the Marxism stuff coming in there already. Right. Mm -hmm. Th those are the those are the structural means that a lot of these uh, these uh, theological terms are kind of getting worked out uh, with. Yeah, we could probably add to, you know, I was thinking earlier, you mentioned, Brett, that there's this affinity between liberation theology and uh, the communist commitment to serve the people. Those are connections that liberation theologians themselves made and drove them to read all kinds of Marxist literature and hang out with Marxists. But one example, I think at least my, my favorite example, is uh, an example that happened in Nicaragua in this very poor uh, chain of islands called Salentaname. Um, one of our heroes, Matt Nyes, is a, a priest named Ernesto Cardinal, um, who we can talk about later too. But he uh, moved to Salentaname as a priest 
um, before the Sandinista revolution because he wanted to work with the, the poorest peasants who were there. And he, you know, usually if you've ever been to a Catholic mass, like you go to church, you sit through it. At one point, the priest gets up, does a homily, and then that's kind of that, right? That's the Bible part of the, the service. But uh, Cardinal, as a priest, actually invited all of the uh, peasants who were at the mass, like the people who were coming to church, to just like tell him what they thought about the Bible. And he published the, uh, the like transcribed recordings of that conversation in a book called The Gospel in Solentiname. And it's this real uh, trust that people can speak from their own experience and interpret the, the biblical text from their own experience. And what you see in those conversations is like a really incredible sort of emergent revolutionary interpretation of the Bible through the experience of what it's like to be poor in Nicaragua. Wow. So that's just like one one example, I guess, of how this works out on the ground, right? It's not just ideas. It's like really transforming how people experience church. Yeah, I love that. I love that entire idea of just going to regular people and having them reflect on uh, on what the what the Bible means to them and and how it makes sense in their in their life, particularly those that are oppressed or living in in deep structural poverty. Um, I know that you've touched on a, a few of the major figures, but maybe we could dive a, a little deeper on this front. Um, can you mention maybe some more major figures and thinkers in in the liberation theology sort of tradition, um, and you know the ones that have existed maybe in the early days all the way up until today that that stand out to you as, as really uh, seminal figures in this field. Yeah, for sure. Since Dean just mentioned um, our personal fave, Ernesto Cardinal, I'll talk about him a little bit more. Okay. Um, he's a cool guy. Uh, so he's a Catholic priest. He's uh, Nicaraguan. He ministered to the very poor in Nicaragua, just like Dean said, and, and this chain of islands called Soltaname. But, uh, you know, not only was he kind of with the people and like reading the Bible with the people, but he got involved with the Nicaraguan revolution. He became a Sandinista and, you know, he was a part of the struggle against Somoza in uh, Nicaragua. Um, and then even more interesting than that, after the revolution, um, he he became the minister of culture in the revolutionary government. So um, he really threw in with the socialists for sure. His involvement in the revolution led to, I mean, to say the very least, a very tumultuous relationship with the Catholic Church. Um, basically, <laughs> he gave up the priesthood for his spot in the Sandinista government. But uh, he was a hugely influential figure in Nicaraguan culture, for sure, um, and also in liberation theology. Um, he was also like a really prolific poet. Um, he wrote, I, I mean, I think that's kind of where a lot of his best ideas come from is from his poetry. Um, but, you know, he um, he would travel to Cuba and like that was a huge part of his life, too. And, and kind of like learning from the the farmers that he lived with uh, in Solentaname, but learning from other socialist uh, governments and revolutions uh, was, you know, a big part of Cardinal's life. Beautiful. Yeah, a few others. I mean, you can't talk about liberation theology without talking about Leonardo Boff, for example, who's a really famous Brazilian theologian. Um, he's still alive. Cardinal just passed away. I guess we should say generationally, like these figures are either recently passing away, like within the last five or six years, we've lost kind of tragically some of the most um, amazing and uh, revolutionary theologians uh, and others are, are still out there. Uh, Boff is one of those who's still out there. I mean, he uh, he and this other Brazilian theologian named Fray Beto, who's a, a favorite of ours, um, they both are like constantly writing about how much Bolsonaro sucks, and uh, they call him uh, Bolsonero, which is a very funny Christian pun, um, <laughs> and uh, just like really active folks uh, in in the struggle. So Boff is is a big one, uh, but Fray Beto is another one of our heroes on the show. He's a he's a priest in Brazil who's a member of the Dominican Order. 
Um, he was imprisoned by the military dictatorship, uh, you know, in the middle of the 20th century. He became a, a real friend to Cuba. Uh, famously, he did a really long interview with Fidel Castro where he asked Fidel about his thoughts about religion. It's uh, published in a book called Fidel and Religion, which is really an amazing text that I think more people should read. But the book is credited with also being part of the reason that the Communist Party of Cuba gave up atheism as a membership requirement. And the state changed its official ideology from atheist to secular, uh, in large part, probably, at least uh, in part, because um, Fray Beto and, and other liberation theologians were willing to dialogue with Fidel and vice versa. Fidel was really quite interested in liberation theology. So uh, Beto and, and Boff are two characters who are like, they write all kinds of great books, but they're also people who are invested in the struggle for international socialism, both in Brazil and around the world. Um, yeah, really fascinating characters. We could list like a ton more, I guess. Like uh, I mentioned James Cone. He's the founder of Black Liberation Theology in the U.S. He was trying to think about how to be a Christian after Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X were assassinated, uh, but also in light of the growing black power movement, which was, you know, like a really important thing to be theologizing about because a lot of people um, kind of get stuck in like the previous iteration of the civil rights movement. So Cohn was trying to like carry that forward and, you know, respond to some different movements that were growing. He really criticized white Christianity in the U.S. and interpreted the Christian story from the perspective of black oppression and liberation. Um, really an important character, I think, for understanding U.S. politics in general, not just uh, Christianity. Um, maybe one other person, I mean, there's like so many people that we could name and they're all very cool. One would be uh, Marcella Althus Reed. She was an Argentine theologian who passed away um, as well. Uh, but she was part of a, a sort of younger generation of liberation theologians uh, wrestling with the oppressive ideologies that were still operative within liberation theology. So it's a self-critical tradition. Um, she developed like a really important and influential queer liberation theology that tried to criticize the heteronormativity that was still part of a lot of liberation theology. So um, it's important to attend to those figures too, right? Like uh, the tradition is kind of always wrestling with itself in light of that horizon of liberation. And what's so impressive about it is that theologically, uh, these are people who are not willing to necessarily retreat into like a conservative defense of whatever this or that doctrine, but are really trying to learn from the experience of people who are being oppressed. Yeah, beautiful. Do either are either of you familiar, and this is sort of a, a side issue, but are either of you familiar with uh, with the Christian mystic Thomas Merton? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a there's there's some interesting connections between Merton and uh, liberation theology as well. Uh, Ernesto Cardinal, the the guy from Nicaragua mm -hmm. that we've been talking about so much, uh, he for a time uh, studied with Merton even. So there's a, a strong connection between Cardinal and Merton. I mean, both being kind of poets and, and stuff too. In fact, uh, Merton almost went to uh, Salentaname with Cardinal actually to establish the community there. He was kind of like wanting to get out of Kentucky um, yeah. and he was pretty close to going, but his order, at least if I remember the story right, the Trappists stopped him from going because they were like nervous that he would get a little too wild and revolutionary. <laughs> and at one point, uh, Merton and Cardinal, their correspondence was barred by uh, Merton's order because they were like, Cardinal's a bad influence. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, um, 
there's a really kind of interesting i mean merton merton has kind of a weird relationship to revolution uh, i don't want to like make him sound too radical but yeah. he could have been probably further radicalized i would say absolutely that's so interesting I, I had no idea i just you know i've gotten into uh to merton i've throughout my life and have recently gone back to one of his works no man is an island and, and working through that again um for those that don't know uh, thomas merton was like sort of a christian monk that was um, weaving in insights and practices from from Buddhism um, particularly, but also probably Taoism into his Christianity and was also a social activist. I know he wasn't a, a full-on revolutionary, um, but certainly left-leaning and that, that, that little intersection between him and the history of liberation theology is something I did not know at all, so that's incredibly interesting. Man living under certain economic conditions is no longer in possession of the fruits of his life. His life is not his. His life is lived according to conditions determined by somebody else. And I would say that on this particular point, which is very important indeed in the early Marx, you have a basically Christian idea. Christianity is against alienation. Christianity revolts against an alienated life. But let's go ahead and, and move on. We've mentioned uh, the huge and sort of essential history of Latin America and how it's tied up with, with liberation theology. So can you talk about the direct impact that liberation theology has had on socialist revolutions and movements in Latin America, particularly, as already mentioned, uh, Cuba, Brazil, and, and Nicaragua? Yeah, for sure. Um well, I guess we can kind of start with, we'll start with Cuba. How about, because <laughs> that's the, that's the easiest one, maybe. So uh, in Cuba, there was no liberation theology when the Cuban revolution started. It's really complicated because Cuba, like, wasn't really an overly religious country to begin with. Before the revolution, priests were largely, you know, sort of situated within um, urban areas like cities and not so much in rural areas. So that sort of like, um, you know, definitely made religion sort of a class element uh, within the Cuban society. Overall, Catholicism in Cuba was sort of, I mean, it's just, it, was, it, was a, it was a bourgeois phenomenon, for sure. <laughs> I don't want to pull any punches, I guess. Uh, though after the revolution, liberation theologians thought of Cuba as sort of like a success story about what was possible with regards to socialism. So like we mentioned, Fray Beto, Ernesto Cardinal, and many other liberation theologians would end up taking trips there to meet with Fidel. Um, and Fidel would, you know, make other trips elsewhere too and meet with them. So Cuba would end up having like a bigger impact on liberation theology than liberation theology on Cuba. But, um, you know, th that's probably because of the the chronology of all of this that's going on. Yeah. Dean, what else can we say about Cuba or some of the other places? It's also maybe worth adding that. Yeah. So chronologically, um, the Cuban revolution happened before uh, liberation theology and then was kind of a, a an impulse maybe within it. But uh, subsequently, as Matt was mentioning, um, liberation theology has a, an effect on Cuba going forward, right? Opening up some of Cuban society to kind of think about the revolutionary potential of religion um, in important ways that, that did affect the country's developing policies toward religion. And of course, um, Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict and Pope Francis all visited Cuba during their papacies, which is very important. 
for a lot of reasons. Uh, but all that to say, um, you know, there's there's a, a kind of interesting dialogue there. Other countries are obviously far more affected, like Brazil. Um, Nicaragua is the best story, so we'll say that for last, maybe. <laughs> but uh, Brazil, you know, the church was on both sides of the military dictatorship. So that kind of because the country is mostly Catholic, it's kind of like you know, you're just going to end up with, like, the people who are on one side or the other of class contradictions are also going to church, you know, which is a, a bizarre contradiction within Catholicism itself. But after the dictatorship was deposed, the Brazilian, and, and during, too, I should say, the resistance, the Brazilian Catholic Church and a lot of Protestants were really quite radical, and people trusted, like, progressive bishops, for example, as authorities to lead them into different struggles or important priests like Beto and Boff. Um, so in Brazil, they organize these things that are called base communities, which are communal organizations that kind of provide the seeds for things like trade unions and literacy programs and peasant federations. People might know about somebody like Paulo Freire, the critical pedagogy founder, really incredible character. Um, he was a Christian and a liberation theologian in addition to being all kinds of other things. And he was part of these, um, base communities as well. So these are kind of like... They're like more than civil society organizations, but less than like a commune, I guess you could say, if you had to like figure out exactly what they are. Um, and in Brazil, like bishops were a pretty big thorn in the side of Pope John Paul II, who was a pretty uh, anti-communist pope to say the least, and Cardinal Ratzinger, who was kind of like um, his like doctrine cop, uh, and Ratzinger would become Pope Benedict later. So the Brazilian bishops were really in massive conflict with the Vatican for all of that period. Uh, a lot of them were disciplined or silenced, which means they like couldn't publish books or, or give public talks and stuff like that. Um, so there was a real struggle emanating both from the Vatican and then also within society itself, of course. Uh, and the last thing to say about it is like movements in Brazil, like the MST, the, the landless workers or landless uh, movement, and then the, the workers party, they owe a lot of their popularity to organizers influenced by liberation theology and to explicit endorsements from bishops and popular priests. So in a place like Brazil, liberation the theology is not just kind of like a thing that you might be curious about. It's like a, a piece of public life or a piece of uh, the political tradition in a way that's kind of hard to imagine in somewhere like the U.S. or Canada, maybe. Matt, do you want to say something more about Nicaragua? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, like you said a minute ago, Dean, Nicaragua is like the most successful experiment in bringing together liberation theology and a uh, socialist revolution and like a party. In the end, f four priests took up posts in the Sandinista government, which is pretty significant. Uh, there are also just a ton of faithful lay Catholics in the government as well. And that, you know, fought in the revolution. There was movement uh, in, in both directions during the revolution, too, I guess. And I'm, I'm not trying to say that uh, Christians are all on the good side, but sure. <laughs> they're on both sides. Uh, the Sandinistas, they realized that they, they couldn't make a revolution by themselves. And especially toward like the last moments in the revolution, they wanted to create opportunities for the masses to participate in demonstrations that weren't uh, explicitly armed. And they saw the relation, they saw relationships with the church as like an important presence to like sort of mediate between the armed struggle and, uh, and, and more like civil disobedience and other types of demonstrations. So priests like Ernesto Cardinal, uh, meanwhile, had been like organizing people in remote areas since before the Sandinistas even took up arms. Uh, so there's like revolutionary energies there amongst sort of like the poorest of the poor. Cardinal was like really impressed by Fonseca and the other revolutionaries and a lot of other people in his Christian community ended up fighting in the Sandinista army 
and like giving their lives to the revolution. So, um, yeah, those, those like, it, it's actually really interesting because, um, in some of the literature in, in, uh, Cardinal's book, the gospel in Solentaname, you know, he'll be reading the gospel with like these peasant farmers on this Island. And then later you can kind of follow their story later on and like what they did in the revolution. And you can kind of see their progression as people, uh, really interesting documentary, uh, documentary texts on these people. But, uh, yeah, you can kind of see them, how they've gone from sort of these like Christians in this, uh, really small community on an Island. And then they end up fighting in the revolution. And it's uh, pretty wild. Beautiful. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And and I know you mentioned um, a little bit of the history of the U.S., but I want to kind of dive a little bit deeper into that. So what has the history been of liberation theology and that tradition in the U.S. specifically, and how does it differ from or even intersect with other major currents of American Christianity? It's a really good question. You know, we mentioned there's lots of different strands of liberation theology that are formed in the U.S. Uh, black liberation theology is one of the most um, kind of famous and probably like more obvious places to look, I guess. But certain kinds of feminist theologies were uh, produced in the United States in the 60s and 70s. There were lots of like big forums for theological uh, discussion about liberation. And there there was all kinds of interesting connections, but also like really important disagreements among theologians about trying to sort out like how to talk about oppression and liberation in Christianity. There was a really important like uh, indigenous or Native American liberation theology movement within Christianity. You know, so all, all these things are, are kind of uh, finding a voice um, as many other social movements are finding a voice too. So that is totally present. In the 70s and 80s in the United States, the liberation theology from Latin America also gave like a lot of energy to leftists in the US. Maybe like one example would be in Chile, there was this movement called uh, Christians for Socialism, and it spread throughout North America. So it was founded in Chile to support Salvador Allende. Um, it was a group of uh, nearly 100 priests and then a lot of uh, lay Catholics, too, who were kind of like, all right, we're going to do this thing. We're going to be part of this project as Christians specifically. After the coup, they obviously were in trouble, and a lot of them fled to the United States, and when they got there, they met up with other Christians they already knew, and that kind of exported liberation theology to uh, the U.S. in one way. There's lots of other channels of export, too, but as a result of that one specifically, there was a lot of Christian energy that was against like the coup in Chile, and there was a Christians for Social movement in the United States and in Canada that had been sparked by trying to be in solidarity with those folks. So, uh, you know, by the 80s, that, that movement kind of dissipates, like the stories of so many things on the left. But uh, anyway, it's a, a really important thing. Matt, do you want to maybe talk about how that relates to other kinds of Christians in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, back before the 80s, liberation theology intersected with all kinds of other like progressive Christian denominations and groups as well is all like very messy. But yeah, like you said, Dean, it just sort of like follows the same path as the the left in general, sort of waning and losing steam in light of um, state repression and like also like church repression, neoliberalism, um, you know, the collapse of other things that it intersected with, like uh, the radical trade union movement and like anti-imperialist movements. So as those things kind of waned, um, a lot of like the energy of liberation theology in the United States did as well. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about the, well, well we can talk about the rest of it later, like what happens to it okay. <laughs> um, in a minute. But uh, yeah, I, and that's kind of like what it looked like at its height uh, in the United States. And I was wondering, as you were giving the, uh, that answer, 
are there like, you know, if liberation theology represents the revolutionary side of the uh, Christian sort of perspective, what are the most reactionary uh, strains of American Christianity in the last few decades up in, even till today? Uh, white evangelicalism. Just as a whole movement? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's all bad. And is the, is the um, prosperity gospel fall out of that? Uh, oh, boy. Dean, what, what do you think? <laughs> uh, it does and it doesn't. Like, a lot of evangelicals don't like the prosperity gospel because they, like— they rightly understand that, um, you know, like the prosperity gospel is just like an extremely cynical, abusive Christianity for the purpose of making money and nothing else. But like they wrongly don't think that that's what Republicans are doing, for example. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's all kinds of weird stuff going on. But I, I would add to like white Christianity in general is the most reactionary force like uh I don't know. You, elections are what they are. But like if you want to draw conclusions from them, um, like in 2016, the most reliable voting block that Trump had was white evangelicals for sure. I mean, it was like overwhelming, like over 80 percent or something. But uh, underneath that, too, like every other Christian denomination, whether it's Catholic, mainline Protestant, whatever you can think of, um, when you when you sort the um like the demographics by race, it's always the white Christians within those denominations vote for Trump. Uh, either Whether it's by a slight majority or a greater majority, it's always the majority over 50%. So, you know, there's a real, like Christianity does not at all sort of escape the, the racial dynamics um, present in the United States. Uh, but certainly if you wanted to talk about like the most reactionary, it would definitely be white evangelicalism, I think. Yeah, interesting. Well, what's the relationship before we move on to the next question um, with Martin Luther King Jr.? Because obviously uh, he was assassinated towards the end of the 60s. So I don't know if there was explicit overlap or if he, you know, even was explicitly introduced to liberation theology as such. Do you have any um, insight on, on that front? Yeah, a, a bit. Um, I mean, he's obviously a towering figure in the history of U.S. Christianity in general, so everybody kind of has to deal with it at some point or another. Mm -hmm. But one thing that's really interesting is a lot of the like civil rights alumni, if you will, like the Christians who marched alongside Martin Luther King Jr., went on to really dialogue with liberation theology in important ways. All those people we just mentioned who were involved in like Christians for Socialism, for example, in the 70s and 80s, almost all those people were like first activated by the civil rights movement and by uh, resistance to the Vietnam War. So for a lot of people, this was kind of a maybe like natural next step um, after the civil rights movement. And, you know, just like the Black Power movement has a really intriguing relationship to MLK, where it's kind of like, on the one hand, you, you sort of like obviously appreciate and respect what MLK did, but you also are maybe open to other kinds of tactics that he wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, it's the same kind of thing with uh, these Christians. Like, you know, they all, you know, everybody likes Martin Luther King and you should. Yeah, <laughs> but like uh, there's uh, liberation theologians in Nicaragua obviously are not pacifists, right? So there's um, a certain uh, difference there that Christians in the United States were kind of willing to be open to. I see, I see. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very interesting. I, I'm almost tempted to, to talk about uh, John Brown's Christianity because I'm reading a book on him right now, but I think that <laughs> might take us too far afield. James Cone, a longtime professor of theology at New York's Union Theological Seminary, wrote the groundbreaking books that defined black liberation theology, interpreting Christianity through the eyes and experience of the oppressed. Among them, Black Theology and Black Power, Martin and Malcolm in America, and this most recent bestseller, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Before we talk, let's listen to these words from Martin Luther King Jr. spoken at Stanford University just a year 
before his assassination. It's as if he were saying them today. There are literally two Americas. One America is beautiful for situation. And in a sense, this America is overflowing with the milk of prosperity and the honey of opportunity. This America is the habitat of millions of people who have food and material necessities for their bodies, culture and education for their minds, freedom and human dignity for their spirits. But tragically and unfortunately, there is another America. This other America has a daily ugliness about it that constantly transforms the buoyancy of hope into the fatigue of despair. In this America, millions of work-starved men walk the streets daily and search for jobs that do not exist. In this America, millions of people find themselves living in rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. In this America, people are poor by the millions. And they find themselves perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. Welcome to you both. Thank you. As he was trying to converge economics, race, uh, social and political equality, what was he struggling for at that time when he, alone among his colleagues, wanted to take on the tough structure of prejudice and economics in the North. I think he was thinking about class issues. He talked about class issues to his staff. He didn't do it primarily in his speeches because of the kind of anti-communism spirit that was so deep in America at that time. But uh, on many occasions, he, he talked about um, um, uh, about the economic and about America having 40 million people who are in poverty, in the richest country in the world. He was talking about restructuring everything. And if you talk about restructuring, you're talking about class too. Yes, you gotta have to understand that some of this class tension was also within the black community. That's right. Some of King's most stinging speeches were to the members of his own like Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity mm -hmm. saying you spend more money on liquor at your annual convention than you contribute to the NAACP. Um, this is, we're more concerned about, uh, I know ministers who are more concerned about the wheelbase on their Cadillac than they are the spiritual base of their commitment to this world. Mm -hmm. So King drew an awful lot of, of, of sustenance and biting challenge from the basic notions of, uh, I think that his favorite parable was the parable of Lazarus and Dives in Luke about not noting. It was about the rich man who passed Lazarus begging at his door and didn't notice him uh, and went to hell. 
um, and saw Lazarus up in heaven. And King interpreted this thing as saying, Lazarus, the, the rich man did not go to hell because he was rich. He, he yeah. went there because he didn't notice the humanity of the man he was passing at his gate and that it was about humanity. Remember the, the, how the, the sanitation strike started. It started because two members of the, the, the sanitation force were crushed in the back of a garbage truck that was a cylinder, one of those compacting cylinders in a, in a torrential rainstorm and they were not allowed by the city to seek shelter in storms um, because the white residents didn't like it. If, if the black garbage men stopped, all the garbage uh, workers were black. And so they weren't allowed, the only place they could get shelter and they wouldn't all fit in the cabin. So the ones that could fit in the cabin and two of them had to climb in the back with the garbage and uh, a broom fell on the lever and it compacted them with the garbage. And that is the origin of the slogan, I am a man, I am a man, not a piece of garbage. And that's, that connects to King's philosophy. And the sanitation man. workers carried those signs, remember, I am a man. I am yeah. a man. And to them, that was about Echo Cole and Robert Walker, their two friends who had been literally crushed with the garbage and nobody noticed. And King is saying, you're going to go to hell as a nation if you don't notice the humanity of Echo Cole and Robert Walker. And, and that's why justice is so central for King and why poverty became the focus of his ministry after that civil rights and voting rights. Uh, because the civil rights and voting rights is not going to get rid of poverty. And so King, King, King saw that as central. Let's listen again to Dr. King from the speech he made to those striking sanitation workers in Memphis just weeks before you were shot to death. What he said about poverty still rings true. Do you know that most of the poor people in our country are working every day? They are making wages so low that they cannot begin to function in the mainstream of the economic life of our nation. These are facts which must be seen. And it is criminal to have people working on a full-time basis and a full-time job getting part-time income. Could anything be more current right now? No, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine and, and of course it's chilling to think what the distribution of wealth was uh, when he made that indictment compared to what it is now. It is much more skewed now than it was then and, and, and it was bad then. So you really get a sense of, of, of King's power. So obviously liberation theology extends, you know, well beyond the Americas. Can you talk about some of uh, the movements um, around the rest of the world outside of, of Latin and North America? Yeah, I mean, there are liberation theology movements, I don't know, basically everywhere. Um, but uh, some of like the, I think of the high points or the ones that we at least like to talk about, or we're good at talking about, <laughs> um, are the, the Christians for National Liberation in the Philippines. Um, so it's a pretty cool movement. And I think it, man, it is, um, it's a pretty radical one too. Uh, so like in response to, a, to the, uh, the declaration of martial law by the, um, the then president of the Philippines, this is, uh, talking some, some time ago, 
uh, priests, nuns, and like lay people started a big resistance movement called the Christians for National Liberation. And they took a lot of their cues from the Maoist movement that was already there. Later, they would end up being coming like a, an allied movement with the NDFP and the the national liberation uh, the Christians for National Liberation it, it uses like I mean you'll you'll find a lot of similarities between what they say and what they think and, and their social action and liberation theology but uh, the Christians for National Liberation falls back on something particular that they call the theology of struggle um, so just like a little bit of a different um, uh, you know a different strain of of theology because of you know different material conditions that they're kind of coming out of but it's a really inspirational movement it still exists it's still it's still around there's still an um you know an allied movement with the ndfp um it's really cool yeah that would be one um there's lots of liberation theology so okay i mentioned earlier like there's liberation theology and then there's other kinds of revolutionary christianities so liberation theology itself is like most prevalent in Latin America for sure. And then in, there's all kinds of third world theologies that, I mean, that's what they call themselves. Third world is like a, you know, contested term on the left. So mm-hmm. I'm just, uh, that's what they say. So that's <laughs> what I'm saying. Um, and uh, they, uh, a lot of them engage in liberation theology explicitly, like they use that term, uh, places like Africa and other parts of different countries in Asia, etc. Um, in Europe, there's kind of like a more academic version of liberation theology, but it's like not as exciting. So I don't know. It's, I'm not not disparaging it. It's cool. It's just, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's different because it's Europe. For sure. um, and uh, anyway, these other kind of revolutionary theologies are always important to bring up, though, because, like, people do assume everything is liberation theology. Um, so Matt mentioned, like, theology of struggle is a little bit different. Um, another one that's different is uh, in China, there's a movement called the Three Self Movement. So during the Chinese Revolution, Christians, especially Protestants in particular, created this movement based on three principles, the three self-principles. So they are self-propagation, which means they don't have any foreign missionaries. They don't allow foreign missions. Um, There's self-financing, so they don't take money from Christians outside of China, and self-governance, so they they don't have, like, bishops overseas or, you know, they don't have, like, a pope or something. Mm. Um, And so... All those three self-principles were designed to build a Christianity that was indigenous to China and also an anti-imperialist version of Christianity. I mean, it's really fascinating stuff. So this is developing as Mao is fighting in the Civil War and, you know, they're trying to find out, like, how to sort of link up with that basically on their own terms. After the revolution succeeded, they became a state-supported organization called the Three Self-Patriotic Movement. During the Cultural Revolution, that was actually very brutally repressed. And I don't know, people have complicated feelings about the Cultural Revolution, and that's fine. But like, if you were a Christian, it was very bad. (laughs) And even if you were a revolutionary Christian, it was also very bad. Um, But uh, again, say what you will about Dengism. I don't know, whatever you want to think about it is fine. But after the Cultural Revolution, that movement was refounded as the Three Self-Patriotic Movement. And uh, it was refounded as part of the, the Popular Front efforts in that country. And today, the Three Self-Patriotic Movement is one of the biggest Protestant groups in the whole world. And essentially, their, their express purpose is to like find a way of participating in building Chinese socialism as Christians. Um, there are like analogous Catholic movements, but they're like way more complicated than the Protestant movement because like Obviously, it's very hard to say that you want to be self-governed um, governed as a Christian community if you have, like, a pope yeah. in Italy. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, all that to say, the three-self movement is another kind of revolutionary Christianity that is not the theology of struggle in the Philippines and also not liberation theology elsewhere. Wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. I did not uh, know that history with regards to the, the cultural revolution and uh, 
how Christians specifically um, were treated within it. So that that's that is interesting, and it's certainly a even for those who might critically up, uphold it as an experiment in proletarian history. Um, I don't think anybody denies that it had its complete failures and rabid excesses, and deserves plenty of criticism. Um, and that's just one element of it. But let's go ahead and, and talk a little bit more about the relationship between liberation theology and, and the Catholic Church. I know you touched on it a little bit, but what has that relationship been like over, over the years? Has it always just been a relationship of, of tension with sort of reaction emanating out of the Vatican? Or has there been moments of, of coming together? And, and where does the Pope today sort of stand in relation, if at all, to liberation theology? I'll uh, maybe start fielding him at, and if you want to help me um, with all the Catholic things I forget. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. (laughs) All right. Yeah, so, you know, the relationship is complicated. That's the best way to put it. Uh, I mentioned Pope John Paul II and Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict. They were, uh, they spent a lot of time severely disciplining liberation theology. They were kind of like theological cold warriors in some respects. Um, You know, people may or may not know, I guess, uh, Pope John Paul II was from Poland, and... um, you know, he grew up in, in Soviet Poland, and so that was complicated for him. And he kind of, like, you know, he did not like communism, and he sort of saw that everywhere and wanted to put it down. Um, and Cardinal Ratzinger was from Germany. So, again, just complicated geopolitics that feed into ecclesial politics. Um, but, uh, yeah, so people like Leonardo Boff, who we've mentioned several times, was someone who was officially silenced by the Vatican, which was, like, a global scandal. Like, people did not—they were not into it. And Boff is, like, progressive in a lot of ways, but, I mean, he, he was not, like, Camilla Torres. Like, he did not go buy a gun and, like, run into the mountains and quit being a priest. He was mm-hmm. just saying, like, hey, maybe there's other ways of doing this. <laughs> and they did not like it. So uh, he he couldn't write or speak or and remain a, a priest in good standing. And eventually Boff did leave the priesthood. So there are like real personal casualties as a result of that situation. And in amidst that tension, there were a lot of, I mean, pe- people uh, I think often look to the Catholic bishops as like a completely reactionary institution. And in many ways they, they are and can be. I mean, they're, they are often some of the most reactionary people in the church. But uh, it's important to have maybe a more multidimensional view because a lot of progressive bishops also tried to defend themselves and their theologians, which was pretty ugly. Like uh, in Brazil, as I mentioned, um, like Brazilian bishops would get called to the Vatican all the time to like be disciplined. And they would either just like not go, and like force the hand of the Vatican to come, or they would go and have like a huge argument and basically say, look, like if you're going to silence this person, then like don't bother coming to Brazil next year or something. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can read a lot about that. Um, there's actually a pretty good book by this journalist named Penny Lerno called um, People of God, The Struggle for World Catholicism. And she she lived in Latin America and reports on that sort of disciplinary energy. So you can read that. It's like on archive.org. But uh, anyway, that's one example. Another would be like, so we've we've held Nicaragua up as like the success story. Um, as a, you might imagine, that was also troubling to John Paul II. So when he went to Nicaragua in the 80s after the revolution succeeded, um, he was also pretty famously publicly heckled while he was saying mass, um, which he did not like. Uh, and he was photographed uh, chastising Ernesto Cardinal at the beginning of his trip, which really um, 
pissed off uh, a lot of people in Nicaragua because um, he was a hero of theirs. So, uh, you know, it's not just the case that, like, like the Vatican tried really hard to use its power to wipe out liberation theology, but they couldn't because people just resisted that. And uh, they eventually were forced to try to affirm parts of liberation theology and to greater and lesser degrees, I guess. So that's JP2. Um, I'll make the rest of the story short. Um, When uh, Pope Benedict became the Pope, uh, a lot of people thought that would be the end of liberation theology because he was the, his nickname was that he was God's Rottweiler. (laughs) Because he, yeah, he did not like um, liberation theologians and (laughs) made that very clear. Um, for, For what it's worth, Benedict did have some kind of like progressive things to say in a marginal sense, but not nearly as far as liberation theology. Um, and, uh, all that though is very different from Pope Francis, who is the first Pope from Latin America. He's from Argentina. He is not a liberation theologian, but he has really rehabilitated a lot of liberation theologian. And, and he's, he's clearly learned from that movement and is trying to like make a space for them in the church. Whereas the church had previously tried to push them out. So to give you an example, like um, we mentioned Cardinal was uh, barred from being a priest because he chose to stay with the Sandinistas before Cardinal died, which was in 2018, I think it was. Pope Francis restored him to the priesthood and made sure that he was a priest and could take communion before he died, which Cardinal happily received. So uh, that's like actually a huge deal, like a very big deal. He has publicly celebrated Mass with people like Gustavo Gutierrez, which is also a very big deal. So um, Pope Francis is not perfect. I mean, he's a really weird guy (laughs) for a lot of reasons. But um, as far as liberation theology goes, he is like undeniably uh, softening the stance and, and in many cases reversing the trend that happened in the Vatican, at least. Wow. Matt, did you have anything to add to that? No, I mean, I think that's good. Yeah. Dean's the Catholic here, so I'll let him talk about it. <laughs> yeah, that's really incredible. So, you know, f- with Pope Francis, how would you put him on the on the political spectrum? Would you just say he's a left liberal or is he even more radical than that? How do you think of him? Um, Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, like, Catholicism is a weird thing because it's not liberal as a religion. Like, um, like Protestantism is often very liberal, not always, but often. I mean, liberalism sort of emerges from Protestant thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. Catholicism is just like uncomfortable in modern society at all, <laughs> for better and for worse. You know, it like it's a medieval institution, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. In in light of that, like Pope Francis is is I would say a left wing Catholic, which is to say, um, you know, he's very critical of like capitalism explicitly. Like he says that there are problems with capitalism, etc. Um, he's also much warmer towards socialism, but he's not like a socialist pope. Um, uh, apologies to Rush Limbaugh. He is not a secret <laughs> Leninist. Uh, I mean, w- would that he was, that would be great. Know, yeah, right? exactly. Uh, well, he, uh, you know, he, he has his own idiosyncratic version of being a, a progressive political Catholic is what I would say. I see. Yeah. I like how you met, uh, talked about the Catholic church as, as being a medieval institution. And it made me think of, uh, the recent sort of pr- kind of, I guess you could call it a rise of, of the trad cats of the traditional Catholics. Do you guys ever have to spar <laughs> with those, uh, those weirdos? <laughs> Try to stay out of it, I think, but they're yeah. always there. They're always present. <laughs> Reminding us that it's a medieval institution indeed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I write for a Jesuit magazine called America magazine. And, uh, as you can suspect, um, a lot of crappy, um, traditionalist Catholics, uh, 
don't like that America employs me in particular <laughs> and make that clear, I think. But thankfully, they keep paying my bills. So kudos to them. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, so that brings us up to, to today. What is the state of liberation theology today? Are there um, cutting edge thinkers and figures still working in that tradition, trying to expand it? Or is it just sort of slowly going along, but not anything you know new or, or dynamic? How do you think about where the, the state of liberation theology at this moment in 2020? Well, it sort of depends on exactly where you mean. Um, in the U.S. and Canada, liberation theology isn't doing great. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's mostly an academic exercise, I think. Um, you know, people who listen to our podcast and uh, and us, we, we like to read it and we're interested in it. But it's not like a thing that's motivating mass struggle in the United States. Right. It's like a, a class you might take in a seminary <laughs> or even worse. It's just like a a topic that might come up in a class about the history of social movements and Christianity or something, right? So in, in the U.S. and Canada, liberation theology has mostly been liberalized and sanitized and kind of robbed of a lot of its really um, uh, revolutionary content. Uh, there are definitely some younger theologians who are doing a lot of interesting work uh, around it, though, and, um, you know, maybe it'll have a comeback and that would be very cool. But yeah, like I said, there's no like there's no mass movements of, of left wing Christians doing sort of like the liberation work outside of the church. I think that's kind of uh, <laughs> it's not happening in the United States, but uh, elsewhere in the world, it is it is a, still a thing. <laughs> liberation theology still exists other places. Um, just like we mentioned a few minutes ago, right, like the Christians for National Liberation, um, they're still doing their thing in the Philippines. Uh, liberation theology movements are still present in like Venezuela and Brazil and uh, even with the Zapatistas. Um, since every place has its own sort of like material conditions and sense, uh, sense of liberation, um, you know, liberation theology looks different and acts different and is different everywhere. But, you know, that sort of impulse, I think, is still alive in, in lots of other movements, but uh, uh, not so much in North America. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, I'd say like in the U.S., uh, there's a, a huge resurgence just with the rise of Black Lives Matter, both the, the kind of first wave and the second wave with lots mm. of people getting reinvested in black liberation theology, which is you know really exciting and encouraging um that's probably like the most uh intriguing vector for liberation theology in the u.s right now so james cone died not too long ago and i think that also kind of contributed in a weird way to like a renewed interest in his work there's also like a lot of really fascinating studies that are just now coming out like there's a lot of people looking for example at like the young the young lords in new york and chicago and trying to kind of think through like their relationship to Christianity and liberation theology, which there's actually like kind of a lot going on there. And the Black Panther Party also had some uh, important connections to liberation theology. So there's like a lot of um, like really new historical work being done on that stuff. And I, I'm sure that that will contribute to social movements in some way or another down the line, or at least I hope. Yeah. Um, and like, there's always Christians doing stuff like, <laughs> you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't say that like liberation theology is dead because it's not. But like Matt said, it's 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 not the case that it's like it is in Brazil, right? Like in Brazil, you can like go to a rally and Leonardo Boff, a public theologian, is out there with a big megaphone telling you why like you know Bolsonaro is a big sinner and like good Christians should like oppose him. Like that's not really um, as commonplace <laughs> like a U.S. rally, right? Yeah. So that's an important difference. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's it's a, to the international communist movement, but to to the American and Canadian communist movement, it's, it's a disadvantage that we don't have more people within that 
tradition operating, trying to push uh, these institutions further to the left. And perhaps, though, um, with the current era, you know, of darkness that we're living in, in best case scenario, if it really is, as it might have been in some ways in previous uh, instantiations in American history, a prelude to a sort of progressive renaissance, then I do hold out some hope that... um, you know, at least a sizable, significant portion of people in the mainstream religions in the U.S. and Canada might start agitating in that direction, and and we can bring in, um, you know, the religious movements into a a broad progressive or radical socialist, etc., a movement going forward. We certainly we certainly need the help of religious people, and we would love to have, you know, the help of of sizable portions within um, religious movements to, to sort of push this entire society in the direction it needs to go. And if you read the messages of Christ, like if you read how Christ lived his life and, and the messages that he was trying to convey, it's very clear that the, the state of America today is in, in so many ways directly antithetical to, to what Christ's entire uh, life was dedicated to, you know, so hope that changes. Yeah, same. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the, the question of whether or not communist movements should embrace religion is, is sort of kind of passe at this point. Most communist thinkers today are, are past the point of, of emphasizing atheism or insisting communism must stand against religion. And in fact, I would argue that most on the sort of principled materialist left understand to some degree, the important role that religion can play in liberation movements across nations and cultures. So instead of rehashing that specific debate, can you just talk about what we as revolutionaries, religious or not, can learn from the philosophy and and the history of liberation theology, positioned as we are at one of the most precarious and important moments in, I think, human history? Yeah, there's definitely a lot to say, um, and we probably won't say it all, but (laughs) here's maybe a few ideas. Um, (laughs) So, uh, you know, liberation theology is something that is primarily concerned about the marginalized in history. That's its whole orientation, a preferential option for the poor. That's, you know, the first step. Um, And that makes it affirm a lot of Marxist projects. Um, But it's also not reducible to Marxism, you know, wholesale. They're they're not the same movement. But it also wants to point out, like, who's being marginalized even in, you know, a progressive movement or in a communist state or in uh, a socialist movement or, or whatever, right? Uh, the way that liberation theologians do that is, I think, different than the way that liberals do it. And uh, because they affirm like the very complicated histories of socialist movements, it's it's important to listen to liberation theology as, uh, you know, like Marx says, the heart of the heartless world. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that I, if, you know, liberation theology can kind of give a really helpful backbone, I think, to lots of other progressive and uh, socialist and communist movements and in, in that they um, you know, they keep us all honest and pointing out exactly who is really, um, who's hurting in any kind of given moment. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and it's also, it's helpful to see that liberation theology is, is great and a good complement to socialist struggles. But, you know, on the other hand, it, like, it's not wrong to maintain a suspicion of religious people as harboring reactionary tendencies because they, they do. I mean, we do. I, I do. <laughs> as, a, as a Christian person that I, I'm constantly trying to, to learn about and, and think through, um, you know, in, in the context of a, a communist movement, um, I'm trying to, to learn about that and think through it. And I think, you know, history shows us that there's a lot of examples when Christians choose the side of capital. Uh, but this also demonstrates exactly why socialists should open up spaces for Christians in the struggle. Um, if you don't attend to religious people on their own terms, 
then they'll definitely find the you know they'll they'll be driven happily into the arms of right wing forces that are are ready to <laughs> to affirm that all all the communists don't like your Christianity etc. Um, you know Fidel makes this point really effectively in Fidel and Religion for example if people want maybe like a, a communist authority to tell them that instead of me, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah like. What I mean by that, I guess, is liberation theology is is a uh, an example of how people who, whether you're you're a Christian or a, some other faith or no faith at all, can at least point to this and say, "Hey, look, like, you know, maybe you can't get down with uh, with being a, a radical atheist or something, but nevertheless, that doesn't prevent you from learning from all these other people who are part of your faith tradition, whether you like it or not." Um, and that is an important sort of. Uh, not only arrow in the quiver to like attack uh, right wing Christianity, but also an important like way to feel like you can authentically invite other people different from you into the struggle, which like, let's face it. I mean, if you're going to have a successful communist movement in a place like the United States or Canada or whatever, like you're going to have to find a way to at least talk to Christians, <laughs> whether or not you, you like them. Um, and liberation theology is like one way that perhaps you could find like a version of it that you could, at least willingly stomach and, and kind of point people toward. For sure. But uh, uh, no, when, when I got the news that my dear brother Barack Obama, President Obama, was going to put his precious hand on Martin Luther King Jr.'s Bible, I, I got upset. And I got upset because you don't play with Martin Luther King Jr. and you don't play with his people. And by his people, what I mean is people of good conscience, fundamentally committed to peace and truth and justice, and especially the black tradition that produced him. All the blood, sweat, and tears that went into producing a Martin Luther King Jr. generated a brother of such high decency and dignity that you don't use his prophetic fire as just a moment in a presidential pageantry without understanding the challenge that he presents to all of those in power, no matter what color they are. No matter what color they are. So the righteous indignation of a Martin Luther King Jr. becomes a moment in political calculation. And that makes my blood boil. Why? Because Martin Luther King Jr., he died owing the three crimes against humanity he was wrestling with. Jim Crow, traumatizing, terrorizing, stigmatizing black people, lynching and so forth, not just segregation, the way the press likes to talk about it. Second, carpet bombing in Vietnam, killing innocent people, especially innocent children. That's those were war crimes Martin Luther King Jr. was willing to die for. And thirdly, it was poverty of all colors. He said it's a crime against humanity for the richest nation in the history of the world to have so many of its precious children of all colors and living in poverty, and especially on the chocolate side of the nations, and on Indian reservations, and brown barrios, and yellow slices, and black ghettos then. We call them hoods now, but ghettos then. So I said to myself, okay, there's nothing wrong with putting your hand on the Bible, even though the Bible's talking about justice, and Jesus is talking about the least of these. But when you put it Martin's Bible, I said, this is personal for me, because this is a tradition that I come out of. This is a tradition that, that's connected to my grandmother's prayers and my grandfather's sermons and my mother's tears and my father's smile. 
and it's over against all of those in power who refuse to follow decent policies. So I say to myself, Brother Martin Luther King Jr., what would you say about the new Jim Crow? What would you say about the prison industrial complex? What would you say about the invisibility of so many of our prisoners? So many of our incarcerated, especially when 62% of them are there for soft drugs, but not one executive of a Wall Street bank gone to jail. Not one. Martin doesn't like that. Not one wiretapper. Not one torture under the Bush administration. At all. Then what do you say about the drones being dropped on our precious brothers and sisters in Pakistan, and Somalia, and Yemen? Those are war crimes, just like war crimes in Vietnam. Martin Luther King Jr., what would you say? My voice hollers out, then don't tame it with your hand on his Bible. Allow his prophetic voice to be heard. Martin, what would you say about the poverty in America now, beginning with the children and then the elderly, then our working folk and all colors, not just here, around the world. Don't hide and conceal his challenge. Don't tame his prophetic fire. So as much as I'm glad that Barack Obama won, I think that Brother Mitt Romney would have been a catastrophe, and I understand my... Brother Newt told the truth of him about vampire capitalism, but that's true for the system as a whole, not just Mitt Romney in that regard. But when Barack Obama attempts to use that rich tradition of Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells Barnett, use the tradition of A. Philip Randolph, use the tradition of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, use the tradition of Tom Hayden and so many others struggling to produce that voice that pushed Martin in the direction that he did, I get upset. People say, oh, Brother West, there's Smiley and West hating Obama. No, no, we just loving the tradition that produced Martin Luther King Jr. and we're not gonna allow it to be in any way sanitized, deodorized, and sterilized. We want the subversive power to be heard. That's what made me think when he said he's gonna put his hand on that Bible. Mm -hmm. And I'm praying for him, I'm praying for him. As is Newt, both of us Christians, you Catholic, I'm Holy Ghost Funky Gut, gut Bucket Baptist, <laughs> but we're praying for him. They're putting pressure on him. I would just urge people out there who, who are listening, regardless of, of sort of where you fall, I think plenty of people um, in our generation are maybe skeptical of, of mainstream religion, are agnostic or atheist, but I also think that there's um, a, a spiritual or even religious impulse in a lot of us that goes unnoticed, um, unfollowed up on, and sort of dismissed out of hand, or at least maybe even funneled into new directions or different directions that are less obvious and explicit. And I would just urge anybody listening who, who feels in their heart that they might have something like a spiritual or religious impulse to really follow through with it and, and to dive into this world of of trying to understand yourself in relations to these to these movements and traditions. And liberation theology gives a foothold for uh, somebody who might be already be you know marinated in the radical left-wing traditions but might not have fully followed up on their own spiritual or religious impulse so i would urge you to do that as always matt and dean thank you so much for coming on and talking about this i really appreciated learning about this and i'm going to continue to learn about this going forward before i let you both go could you maybe give a recommendation or two for anyone who might want to learn more about liberation theology specifically and then let listeners know where they can find you and your work and your podcast online? Yeah, uh, 
read about Ernesto Cardinal. He's a great he's a great guy. I want everyone to know about my my personal hero, Ernesto Cardinal. Um, he's primarily a poet, um, so I think you'll have to read some poetry to kind of get into it. Uh, he has a great book of poems called Pluriverse that are really beautiful. Um, and uh, man, he's got so much stuff going on. Um, if you want to know more about it in the United States, uh, you can learn about Christians for Socialism. Come listen to our podcast. <laughs> I don't know what what else, Dean. What else? What are the good books? Yeah, uh, lots of good books you could learn about. Um, there, if you want like a, a really interesting left wing perspective, there's a good book by Michael Lowy, um, who's a Brazilian Jewish Marxist. Um, he wrote a book called The War of Gods, which is a pretty short like historical book about liberation theology. It was written before um, Pope Benedict was Pope. So, you know, it's it's dated now in some ways. But the history, he covers basically all the important stuff and he still ends with the Zapatistas, which is, you know, you, you miss out on all the cool stuff happening in like Venezuela and Bolivia and elsewhere. But uh, it's a, a great book. Um, so I would direct people there if you kind of want to come at it from a different perspective. Um, certainly second the Cardinal suggestion. Uh, there's a number of other theologians. I mean, I would definitely tell people you should read James Cohn whether you're a, a Christian or not. I mean, just a, a very powerful sort of moral voice and theological voice. And he also, like, if you're looking to interrogate white Christianity, for example, which I think Marxists should do, somebody like Cohn is going to help you do that in a way that's really unique because he's trying to criticize it from similar kind of religious tradition but a a political uh, and existential reality that couldn't be more different so anyway an important historical character to learn about yeah you can find our podcast the magnificast we talk a lot about all this stuff over there um i should add one kind of shameless plug at the end here related to this Uh, I, i teach at a place called the institute for christian studies in toronto a very weird christian school and uh, I'm hoping to teach a, an intensive class online coming up soon that's just about liberation theology, um, talking about the history of it and some of the major figures. And that'll happen, I hope, in October. But we'll kind of find out. In any case, you can find out more about it um, by following me on Twitter, I guess, at Dean Detloff. And you should follow Matt on Twitter. And that that's the best way to figure out what we're doing, I think. Beautiful. Yeah, I'll link to uh, the, the Twitters and, and the podcast in, in the show notes. If you haven't listened to the Magnificast, definitely go check it out. And thank you, Matt and Dean, once again for coming on. Let's keep in touch and work together again in the future. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, Brett. Always great to be here and uh, uh, great to have you back on the Magnificast. We'll see you again there soon. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast and I guess more appropriately to Red Left Radio. Uh, Really grateful to Brett for having us back on the show. It was a lot of fun. Always love talking to Brett. Uh, Lots more to be said as always, but we'll talk more about it some other time. Uh, You should definitely support uh, Brett, uh, Red Left Radio, at their Patreon. You can also support our podcast at our Patreon, of course, but... If you don't have that money, just send us uh, some good vibes, some good prayers, whatever your speed might be. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. You can find Brett on Twitter as well at Rev Left Radio. And you can send us an email and you can tell us all the things we forgot to say at the Magnificast at gmail.com. Till then, we'll see you next week. Our music, as always, is by Amoria Armstrong and our outros by The Illogical Spoon. And by the way, uh, if you want to hear the the if you want to hear this episode all over again, <laughs> you can hear Brett's great intro and outro music that we cannot credit because we don't know anything about it. Uh, but check out Rev Left Radio, see what else they've got going on in their feed, and we'll see you next week. 
There we'll swim with all creation, never get tired, never bored, don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early Besides what else are you gonna do? As we kissed in the alley by the Michigan feeder